please turn to 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. Like in so many Christian places today, there is a cross prominently displayed behind me this morning. I double-checked so I could begin with this illustration. We're good, yes, indeed. Crosses are somewhat commonplace in today's landscape, but what is the actual meaning of the cross? If it could speak, what message would it be, would it be telling us today? Well, for many people in our society, it symbolizes something familiar. Ah, there's something I recognize. I feel at home. I feel safe. I feel faith and tradition. On the other hand, some view the cross as outdated and out of touch. It's a bygone era, the era of Christianity. To them, it offends their sensibilities. There's backwards rules associated with the cross. Some popular figure, uh, figures today use the cross as a style symbol or a good luck charm. I don't know how many times I've seen the player on deck cross himself before he gets up to bat, sort of in hopes of good luck, I think. And I'm not necessarily arguing with any of those this morning. All I'm saying is that the people living in the days of the New Testament had a dramatically different view of the Roman cross. It just was different to them. It was a shocking and gut-wrenching object. So the fact that God, our God, the God of the Bible, chose the cross as the instrument of salvation and redemption is one of the greatest plot twists ever. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, let's read verses 18 to uh, the end of the chapter break. <clears throat> For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is he who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through its wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God shows, again, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, Back to our controlling question this morning. What does our God think of the cross? How would he describe it? Well, Paul, in this section of scripture, is going to teach us that God summarizes the reality of the cross with one word. It's a word that we're familiar with here at Gateway. It's wisdom. God looks at the cross and he calls that wise. 
That is wisdom to him. But it's not the kind of wisdom that we might expect, right? It's surprising. Here's our, our, our thesis for the morning. Paul teaches us that the wisdom of God stunningly, shockingly, is revealed by way of the cross. So our Gateway family knows that we have been working through James. And James has been very polemic. He's taught us about wisdom that is from above and wisdom that is from below. He contrasts these two kinds of wisdom, right? And we've learned that even though we could convince ourselves that some things are wise in this world, God does not always call those things wise, does he? God has his own standard of what wisdom is. Wisdom comes from him, and it comes from the scripture. That's where we look to to find what is real wisdom today. Some wisdom, which portrays itself to be wise, is actually, like James says, earthly, unspiritual, devilish. Pastor preached that, and those are strong words. That's the opposite of the wisdom of God. Now, you start talking about wisdom like that, and you are going to attract some Corinthian attention. These guys loved wisdom. They loved to talk about it. The ancient city, the Grecian city of Corinthos, they were a culture fixated on human wisdom. That was what they were driving after. How do we find wise and excellent behavior? So in the streets of Corinth, this is where the setting is. In a culture that was brimming with conversation about wisdom, what is the wise way? Who's the wise person? That's what people are talking about in Corinth while this is being written. The Corinthian culture had their own version of wisdom from below. Here's what it was. They are famous for styling themselves as progressive, ingenious, self-promotional, excellent humanistic, and most of all, free people. They were cocky, but they also devoted quite a bit of their cultural attention to wisdom. Their earthly wisdom claimed to have freed them. So the Greek culture at large is a culture that is enamored with human wisdom. And that's where Paul addresses this letter, contrasting wisdom from below with wisdom from above. So Paul's claim in 1 Corinthians 1 is that the Corinthian wisdom, the popular going wisdom of the day, has actually been creeping into the church. The church, like James says, has been trying to follow God's wisdom, the wisdom that is from above. But you have this cultural pressure pushing in on the Corinthian church, and they're starting to give way to it. They're starting to think, not like Christians, but like Corinthians. And Paul is challenging that. I actually think, and you can make a case for, the fact that Paul goes back to wisdom of the cross in chapter 1 is the root of all of the problems that the Corinthian church faces. We know about their issues, right? Anybody who's been in church at all, you know about the Corinthian church. They're like persona non grata, right? We don't talk about them. But the Corinthian church was struggling with quarrels over leadership. They were struggling with sexual chastity. They were struggling with a whole number of ministry issues. And Paul deals with that here by talking about the cross. And I think if you want to look down, you see verses 10, I'm sorry, verse 11, 17, 18, 21, 22, 25. They all begin with the word for. Paul is bringing us back to his claim in verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree. That's his plea. He says, be unified. You are in Christ. Now stay unified in him. And then he goes through about seven because of. Because of this, stay unified in Christ. And so the passage we're dealing with today is one of those because of this. It's because of the cross. It's because of the cross. We need to stand unified this morning. 
So what can we learn this morning from the wisdom of the cross? I think uh, three questions, simple questions, will help us reflect and unpack this. What it is, how it functions, and why it matters. You literally couldn't ask for a, a more simple outline, right? What, how, and why? We're dealing with the wisdom of the cross. So what is the wisdom of the cross? What is it? Let me reread verses 18 and following. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Here it is. The wisdom of the cross declares a bloodied and sacrificed Messiah for people who themselves should have been bloodied and sacrificed. People like me, people like you. The Messiah powerfully conquers by suffering. Look at the end of verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, which the Corinthians would have been amazed at. They loved eloquence, they loved rhetoric, but Paul says that's not the way I go about it. Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The cross has power, but you have to be wise in what the cross says and and how it says it. This is what the cross says also. It requires that each believer, each follower of Jesus Christ, right, our Messiah, we follow his path to the cross. We follow in our own path to execution. We die in union with him before there can be any triumph, any success, any fruit. Pastor often says, uh, Christ did not die so you could live. Christ died so that you can die with him and you can live in his resurrection. And that's a beautiful picture of the gospel. It is the cross before the crown. The Corinthians bucked at that message. Here's Romans 5. I love this summary of the gospel. You could probably quote this with me. I won't have you do that. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were yet what? Sinners, Christ died for us. That is the message of the cross. We need a rescue. So Paul, in this chapter, clearly understood how this message of wisdom would be received in the Corinthian day. Preaching that mankind was helpless, that we were yet sinners, Romans 5, would have been a message that just completely destroyed the Corinthian culture. It would not have landed well. Like I said, they were obsessed with mankind. Think about some of these things. In Corinth, and some in Athens, now Athens is not far from Corinth, The Isthmian Games were were located in Corinth, and this was like an ancient form of the Olympics. It was to see who is the most powerful human in our known world. This is like their Olympics, a famous display of physical prowess. It's a celebration of humanity. How about the Agora, located just a short journey away in Athens? This is the place where ideas were set forth and debated. This is where people would debate the modern wisdom of the day. Who is right? What's the good life? How can we move forward? This is the place where many would argue that democracy was born. It's where the legacies of Socrates and Aristotle were. Again, a celebration of humanity. What can we do? How far can we go? And of course, lastly, there was a number of shrines and idols in Corinth and all throughout the Mediterranean uh, world, especially Greece. A celebration of of humanity and our desires, our worship. In Corinth, there was the goddess Aphrodite. Aphrodite was the main god. 
the goddess of passion, immorality, and procreation. And the temple rituals there just down the street from the Corinthian church is a place where sexual immorality would be part of the worship service to Aphrodite. This was something happening in the society that was very real. I think this gives fresh meaning to when Paul says in a later chapter, 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said that two shall become one flesh. This isn't abstract for them. They're seeing this happen in their worship service. And Paul says, stay pure. Anyway, this is all about how the cross challenges their conception of humanity. So think about the call of the gospel. How does that conflict with the Corinthian message, right? Because we're answering the question, what is it? Well, catch this. It is the very message of human blindness and weakness that God uses to bring people to salvation. It's the message that we need a savior. It's a message that we can't reach heaven on our own. It's a message that we need to cling hold of somebody else to save us from our sins. That's why Paul says, to those who are perishing, this is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice that, that dilemma there in verse number 18. To those of us that are perishing, it's one thing. But to those of us that are being saved, this message is a treasure. Even though it tells us we're sinners, it's a blessed message. It's a good thing. What is not changing in that dilemma is the message. What is changing? It's the heart of the person receiving it. To the heart of somebody who is a believer, whose heart has been changed by free grace, the message of the cross is a blessing. We love to tell that story, right? On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. Would you sing with me the chorus? So I'll cherish the old rugged cross Till my trophies at last I lay down I will cling to the old rugged cross And exchange it someday for a crown Indeed, to those of us who are being saved, the cross is the power of God. That is the way that God has chosen Glance down at verses 19 to 20, please. Paul says, for it is written, quoting the Old Testament prophet, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Then he asks, so where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the things of the world? You see, the message of the cross isn't just different from the message of the world. It's not just different from the going wisdom. It's not just that the reality of the cross is slow for people to get. This is the point Paul is making. It's actually that the wisdom of man is under the judgment of God. So the preaching of the cross brings them more and more judgment. This is how God and his economy has chosen to act. So the wisdom of God is that the message of the cross to one, to those of us who are being saved, we treasure it. But to those who are perishing, it's actually hardening them further and further against the truth. In other words, God's judgment isn't necessarily removing this message, but it's allowing them to see it as foolishness. The light which he gives induces more blindness because people are willfully blind. This makes me think of, of, of Romans chapter 1. 
Very crucial point of reference for this. Paul says in Romans 1, do you remember? That the wrath of God works against the unbelieving world. And the way that it works is this. The light which they have rejected again and again, it suddenly stops softening and awakening them. Instead, it begins to harden them and stupefy them. So the message of the cross to us is salvation. But to the unbeliever, those who will never be saved, it is the instrument of judgment. The message of the cross, the cross is it's powerful. This is what Romans 1 says. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. So what is the wisdom of the cross? Well, the wisdom of the cross acts as both a blessing and a judgment at the same time. This is why it cuts so deep. Because human wisdom, the wisdom that says mankind can reach any limit he wants, the wisdom that was popular in Corinth, in the Agora, in Athens, this rejects the implications of the cross, just like people today too. The message of the cross is rejected by them because they can't see themselves as needing rescued. Human wisdom has a poison pill that keeps it at odds with the message and the wisdom of the cross. And it is actually this very point at which worldly wise people will renounce the message of the cross as offensive and troubling. Brethren, we, we carry a message of incredible grace and kindness, but it's also a message like a barrel of dynamite to the worldly wise, to the person who's enamored with himself, to the proud mother, to the self-important father, the arrogant and unbending high schooler. It's a strong message and the fuse is already lit. It's a strong message. To the saved, it gives us more light. To the unsaved, it brings a level of judgment. This is what Paul is saying. So what is the wisdom of the cross? It's a double-edged sword. It must come without any ties to human reliance. It must come to pierce the hearts of each person and it demands that they submit to it. It's the message of a crucified Lord Jesus Christ. The following verses help us answer now how, how the wisdom of the cross works. We talked about what. Look at verse 21. Here Paul explains, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. These terms, the Jews demanding a sign, the Greeks demanding wisdom, actually parallel an earlier verse where it talks about the scribe, the debater of this world. I think that's what he's going back to because the Greeks love to debate wisdom. They love to seek after wisdom. The Jews had their strong opinions on the Old Testament. They were the scribes. But to both of these people, the cross seemed offensive. The cross seemed like it didn't make sense. Why is that? Why is that? Well, the popular Hebrew conception of a Messiah was not somebody who suffered and died, right? It was somebody who conquered on behalf of the Jews. They were seeking somebody who was a political figure to give them safety and security. They wanted a king. They wanted it now, right? Unfortunately, the Hebrews missed the need for atonement. They were ready to move on to social conquest. 
The Grecians weren't so much interested in social conquest. They were interested in social elevation. They prized the position of power and influence. They desired to stand in the agora and to debate, and they wanted to see themselves elevated. So they scoffed at the cross. So the how of the gospel challenges both of these groups in this passage because the how, the how of the gospel will always challenge fallen humanity. It is a message of humiliation and atonement for sin. Jesus Christ was the sacrifice for our repeated rebellion. It was God's right wrath that fell on him. This is a message that is rejected today by people. People scoff at the gospel. It seems too offensive. It seems to put too bleak of a picture of their own nature So then you might ask, and maybe the Corinthians are asking this, and it's a good question, how are we any different? How has the message of the cross come to us as wisdom? Look at the first few verses of verse 24 and 26. But to those who are called, verse 26, for those, or that was verse 24, verse 26, for consider your calling. What's the word there? I gave away the bag. It's calling, the calling of God. This is what makes all the different. What hope is there for any of us today? It's the calling of God. The answer is that the calling of God for believers results in salvation. Salvation is how what was once considered foolish and small, it was to me before I was saved, it suddenly turned into the power and wisdom of God. Now you might be asking, but isn't everybody called? And you're right. You're partially right. The New Testament actually gives two categories of calling. I believe this is accurate. There's a general invitation where Christ and, and, and the word invites people to be saved, right? Many are called, but few are chosen. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is God's heart. But there is another call that God specifically and effectually works for those of us that are saved. That's the calling to salvation. And let's go to Romans 8 just to look at that for a minute. It's important to get this because the rest of the passage kind of hangs on this. Romans chapter 8. Look at verse um, 29. Right after the famous 828, we know that all things work together for good. Paul says, For those, this is believers, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There is a calling for, for Christians that will result in salvation. In heaven is our home. That is the calling that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 1. Christian, you are called. You are called by God. You are called by God to salvation. And this call works. God brings you to himself and you are saved. Now, how those two go, go together hand in hand, I'm not entirely sure. We're not going to solve that here, but we have to accept both of those categories in the New Testament. And here, Paul is saying, if you're a believer, you've been called. You've been called out of Corinth. You've been called out of your culture. You've been called to think differently. And at the center of that thinking is your thinking of the cross. That's the thing that's at the very heart of it all. Romans 8, that's a wonderful, unbroken chain of verbs. The interesting thing is they're all past tense. God foreknew He predestined, he called, he will eventually glorify every believer in Jesus Christ. And the Corinthian church will be in heaven. They've been glorified and we'll look forward to seeing them someday. I want to step back here and do a little application. 
The wisdom of the cross calls us to echo the gospel message. Not to subvert it, not to manipulate it, but to actually preach it. Verse 21 tells us that it pleased God through the folly of what we preach. The wisdom, the message of the cross will be folly to some. The message will often be viewed as underwhelming. It's not enough. It's too gory. It's too backwards. It's too ancient. But Paul consistently presents his ministry in such a way, not only that he relies on God for the power, but that the only possible explanation for the fruit must be God. He's saying the very thing that people have trouble with, that's what I'm preaching. That's what I'm preaching. He's preaching the gospel because that's where the power is. He leans into a message that the world will always find foolish. And folks, the world will find the gospel foolish. We have to accept God's word on this. We don't back away from it or try to repackage it. Otherwise, like Paul, we would be, we would be not following Paul's uh, example here. He leans into a message that the world will find foolish. So does, does this inform kind of our philosophy of ministry here? Does that help us think about how we should present the gospel? I think it does big time, big time. First, let's reject the worldly wisdom that sacrifices the pure message of the cross in an attempt to be relevant. People in the first century found the gospel foolishness and offensive. Do we expect things to be different than that? God says that's not how his wisdom works. Even if the world calls us foolish, remember, the end of verse 25 is a great comfort. Even the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. We preach that message even though it won't be received. C.S. Lewis once said, All that is not eternal is eternally out of date. That's a great summary. All that is not eternal is eternally out of date. The gospel message and that wisdom is eternal. We have to keep that as the core of what we're doing. To attempt to shape the gospel around what is fashionable and popular is precisely what Paul is saying he's not doing, right? He's saying the Greeks want one thing, the Jews want another thing, but I'm giving you the gospel. Let's, let's throw our hat in, as it were, in the side of godly wisdom. Let's preach Christ crucified regardless of the outcome. That's where the power is. So let's not allow that shaping. Secondly, let's allow our ministry to be simple and unadorned, not just that it can't be done aside from human conceptions, but that it actually defies human conceptions. Paul is saying, the reason that you know my ministry is genuine is because there is no explanation other than this is the wisdom and power of God because people find this offensive. Manipulation, pragmatism, those are where the, few, the fruits of human wisdom that the church of Corinth, of Corinth fell into. Chapter 1, verse 11, 2, 14, 3, 4. That's not how God's wisdom works. And I'll tell you, as somebody who's a young preacher studying uh, for ministry, this is an incredible comfort because it is, on one hand, it assumes that people will oppose the message to some degree, but also that the very message, which seems unpopular, is where you can be confident to continue to pro- proclaim the simple gospel. God has promised to work through those means. That's how God, in his wisdom, has chosen to do it. That is the how of his wisdom. If it was appropriate, if it was appropriate to entertain people to Christ, Paul could not say the message was folly, could he? If the message succeeded or failed based on the smartness of the ministry, how cutting edge it was, Paul could not say it was folly. 
If we feel like our strength and experience and skill are what moves this ministry at Gateway forward, Paul would say that this is not folly. And we want to be folly in the eyes of the world. We want to present the gospel clearly and put our full weight behind it. Of course, this is not saying we should be strange or out of touch or retro. I'm not saying that or dumb or stupid or any of that. Clearly, Paul has given us an amazing letter, an amazing argument. He's elevating his rhetoric here. So it doesn't require us to be untactful, thoughtless, or harsh. It doesn't mean that we're, not un, we're uncreative. But I think the, the foundational thing is, is that we can exercise our gifts, but we don't, we don't trust in our gifts. We don't trust in our style of ministry to bring people to the gospel. We don't trust in our style of, of worship or in the style of how we present the gospel. We trust in the gospel itself. That's where our confidence is. That's where Paul's confidence is here. That is the how. Because human wisdom is not how the cross of Christ is made wisdom. So we've seen the what and we've seen the how. Let's conclude with this. Why? Why the wisdom of the cross? Why has God chosen to do it this, this way? It's a great question. Paul's going to answer it for us. Before he does, I, I want to illustrate. I promised pastor I'd, I'd bring in one baby illustration. So here it is. Our love for our son Judson is completely unmerited. He's completely dependent on us. Our kindness and our attention to literally keep him alive. He wouldn't live without us. Does he give us anything in return? On the contrary, he gives us the other side of things, like 3 a.m., right? He's not giving us anything in return. He's actually sometimes pushing back against our kindness. It's like, you don't know what's good for you, son. Just trust us. In fact, his response is sometimes the exact opposite of how one would expect to see gratitude. Are you really thankful, buddy? (laughs) But I think that's exactly the point because that is how God the Father often views us. It is this unconditional, unreturned, one-sided, generous love by which we actually find ourselves rejoicing. Our love for our boy is actually stronger and more glorious because we're just pouring it out generously. There's no return and it's a blessing. Remember what Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And we would say as parents, absolutely. We can confirm that now. It is more blessed to give yourself to somebody who has no hope of paying you back, right? Does that sound like the father to us? I think it does. I think it does. Our love is more glorious, more celebrated because he can't give it back. And the love of the Father, because we can't offer human wisdom, is all the more glorious and perfect and satisfying. Deuteronomy 7 talks about this in a beautiful way. This is the Lord showing love and compassion to his people in the Old Testament. Listen to this. Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest among all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. Moses' argument here is God loves you because he loves you. Because he loves you. Because he loves you, full stop. That's what the wisdom of the cross is. It's a one-sided act of generosity. God loves us because he loves us. 
Verse number 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. This reminds me of Ephesians 2. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Keep that word boast in mind. But that's Paul saying, if salvation were of works, we would have something to be proud of. But it's not. It's apart from our works. It's actually in spite of our works. That's the beauty of salvation. Verse 26 says, For consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. There was a young woman by the name of Selina. She was a countess in England. She lived during the time of John Wesley and George Whitfield. She became friends with them. She was a strong person. She was an influential political figure, highly powerful. But the Lord saved her in England out of a life of sin and saved her to some amazing works of charity and love and kindness. She's an interesting character. But her testimony, she said, is summed up in the words of verse 26. And she was famous for saying, I was saved by an M. Because what does the verse say? Not many of you were wise. And she said, thank the Lord it doesn't say not any of you were saved, just not many. And I think we can agree with that. Thank the Lord that he does save some. But I think the point of these verses is that he doesn't pick out the people who are powerful in this world to always display the gospel. He picks out people who the question cannot be answered. Of course, it's of God. It's not of anything in their character. So the ultimate answer, the ultimate why, we circle back. It goes back to the kindness and compassion of God. It is so that his grace can be our boast. That's why he chose what is low and despised in the world. And that's why he brings to nothing things that are. So that no human being, verse 29, might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, You who are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that the ultimate why, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I want to read Jeremiah 9, which is where I think Paul is drawing this from, and we'll wrap up with these thoughts. Listen to what Jeremiah says, and this is a great admonition for us today. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his strength. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. Paul would probably add, believers know the Lord by the most unlikely of means. The wisdom of the cross is surprising. Therefore, don't remove the surprising, shocking nature of the the cross. Keep it where it is. That is how God channels glory to himself. God gets all the more glory. And the end of the chapter, verse 31, we have all the more reason to boast because we're boasting in the Lord alone, nothing else. It is the glory of believers. It is the boast of us today. It's at the very heart of the gospel. It's an unprovoked, undeserving act of saving grace. So I would say, brothers and sisters, this morning, Consider your calling. Let's boast in God alone. Let's pray. 